Hey, I'm really glad you were here tonight. Hopefully I've got something that's going to add to you. I appreciate you coming out on a Wednesday night, and I appreciate your faithfulness in the life of our church, and I trust the Lord will, will speak to you tonight. I've been talking to you since last September about the person of Jesus Christ. And it is my conviction, it is a biblical position that Jesus Christ is unique and different more so than any person that's ever walked the face of this earth. We as Christians believe that the Christian experience, the following Christ, is unique. That we are not one of many religions in the world, but there is a uniqueness about Christianity. There's a uniqueness about Christ, not about me. I'm a person like every person on the planet. I've done things that are wrong just like every other person on the planet, but it is Christ that is different. And I have been trying to proclaim to you since last September part of the things that not only what Christ did, but what He taught. Uh, if you may recall, we began a long time ago with an overview of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell of His ministry while He was on the earth. The book of Acts and following, of course, is the ministry of the church, the bride of Christ as it goes forwards. We talked about a timeline of His life. We asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? Now, that's a big question. I was watching just several weeks ago, uh, it was an interview on Fox News when this judge, I believe it was, this federal judge that came out against the National Day of Prayer, basically saying that, you know, the government shouldn't have anything to do in religion and espousing or advocating prayer. And the most interesting person was interviewed, it was a reverend. I'm amazed at how many people, sadly, from Christian traditions carry the name reverend, but don't hold Christ in his exclusive esteem. You know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, recorded of himself, made the statement that I am the way the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. And in this interview on Fox News, they were interviewing Barry Lynn, who is the president, I believe, of a group called Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And he kind of gave himself away when he said he believed there were many ways to heaven. And I thought, well, no wonder I get a letter from him every election season warning the church that you can't certainly transgress into any line having to do with cultural issues of the day because he believes that there are many ways to heaven. Well, there is an exclusiveness about Christ, not just because he was smarter in his teaching, but because of his divinity, because of the perfect life he lived, because of the sinless life, the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. The Bible says Jesus Christ was very God. That is, he was divine. He was not like the Mormons believe who was a lesser God than the real God. No, Jesus was co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. So I've been trying to talk about his uniqueness, not only of who he was, but what he did and what he taught. Remember, we talked a number of weeks about his parables. And mind you, all the things we've been talking about are on a website. You could go and you could churchontherock.org. You could listen to them. You could watch it online. You could download it to your iPod or iPhone. If you don't know how to do it, your child or grandchild will teach you how. But uh, you can do that. You can even get a copy of all the notes. If you, you know, wish you'd have written something down and didn't do it, uh, you, can, you, can, you can see that there. And then, of course, the last probably two months, we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I want to shift a little bit tonight. I'm going to stay with the person of Christ. But I want to talk to you about what Jesus said in the New Testament about Christ and the future. The future. We'll talk about the end of the world. We'll talk about the last days. We'll talk about the second coming of Christ. We'll talk about the future from a biblical point of view. See, for the believer, we see life on this earth as temporary, and we have an expectation of what's called the blessed hope. That is, the second coming of Christ. 
You may recall that after Jesus gained his victory over death, hell, and the grave, after he rose from the dead, uh, he's standing with a group of his followers, and uh, lo and behold, he is literally lifted up into heaven in the clouds, and he disappears. And the angel says, hey, guys, what are you looking at? This same Jesus who left this way in the ascension is coming back in the second coming. So basically until then, you go do the business of the church, you reach the world, you preach the gospel to all nations, and then the end will come. So I want to talk to you this evening beginning of what Jesus himself taught, and we may broaden it a little bit as we go about what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. But Matthew chapter 24, there's three chapters in the Bible that are somewhat the same that Jesus taught about end time events or end time activities. It was Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. Much of the material is repeated, but a little bit of it is different. I'm going to follow the uh, teaching of Matthew, and I'll supplement with uh, anything Mark and Luke might have had said uh, were a bit, a bit different. I apologize, our scriptures aren't working on the screen. Uh, our video card or something went out, so you're just going to have to move through the Bible real quickly with your fingers tonight. But here's Matthew 24, an overview. And again, I'm looking at the major headings or topics that the Spirit-Filled Life Bible uses. Uh, it begins talking about the destruction of the temple. I'll explain that to you. Jesus gives us some of the signs of the end of the age. He talks about how the world will relate to believers in persecution. He talks about a period of time called the Great Tribulation. And then he speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ or the Son of Man. He'll talk about the parable of the fig tree, if we could explore what that might mean. He reminds us that no one knows the day or hour of his coming. And lastly, he'll contrast the faithful servant who is watchful and mindful of the master's coming as compared to the evil servant. So let's begin Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, as he talks about the destruction of the temple. Now what I'll do is I'm going to look at three sections tonight, and uh, I'll read the passage to you, and then we'll kind of go over the, the, the verses uh, verse by verse and kind of make some notes. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now, Matthew 24... This is the latter part of Jesus' ministry. This is when the Pharisees and religious leaders are in attack mode. They're ready to get rid of Christ. Just as a short period of time before literally they, they corral him, they, uh, he's betrayed before he's lied about, and he's kind of addressing a mature group of disciples, but he's talking about the end of the age. Now, he goes out and departs from the temple. Jesus would go in this place called the temple, very unique in Jewish life, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one of these stones shall be left one upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, let me just kind of start there uh, as he's talking basically about the destruction of the temple, which has to do with judgment. That was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D., the Roman would-be emperor one day, Titus, he was the emperor's son at the time. He was literally the one that besieged Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and shortly after that, they destroyed the temple. Now, this is the fourth Jewish temple. The first Jewish temple or tabernacle was the temple or tabernacle of Moses, more likely called the tabernacle because it was portable, it was movable. As they journeyed through the wilderness, uh, it was very intricate the way that it was involved, but its basic structure was then emulated as they would build permanent structures. The second, and of course, in Moses' tabernacle, you had what was called the outer court. You had the inner court, and you had the Holy of Holies. Remember, the Holy of Holies was that sacred place. It was separated by a veil. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The high priest would go once a year with blood. Outside of that, in the holy place, the priest would go. 
And those priests, it was the table of showbread where they would literally bake bread each day. There was a candlestick that burned there. Um, uh, there was an altar of incense. That incense would be burning and go up as the prayers of God's people. And only priests could go in that area. In the outer court was a place called the burnt offerings where people would come, they would bring their offerings. And that was in Moses' tent. Well, that carried over in Solomon's tent. It was this great, great, magnificent building. David, of course, his dad had, had saved up money. He'd collected things. It was the zenith of the prosperity of the Jewish people when that temple was built. It was a marvelous thing. But lo and behold, it was destroyed when the Jews were sent into exile. It was destroyed, of course, you remember the exile that happened. They went into Babylon. They went into Persia. The whole thing was wiped out. It was destroyed. And then about 70 years later, they come back, and under the governor Zerubbabel, they rebuild Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, of course, it was only a shade of its former glory. But all along, this was the central focal place of Jewish worship into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law. And the central aspect of it was the place of sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And then, of course, in Jesus' day, King Herod had dismantled the temple that Zerubbabel built and rebuilt it in its place. It was more elegant. It was larger. Uh, there were many buildings that surrounded it. But unique in their day was it had become politicized. Rome and the Jewish governor Herod were somehow joined together in some alliance. And uh, it wasn't just about the purity of religion that the early Jewish people had known. Now it had kind of become mixed. And lo and behold, Jesus is basically saying this whole system is going to be destroyed. So, in his private teachings to his disciples on this Mount of Olives, after he had talked about the destruction of the temple, they're going to basically ask him a question about when is this going to happen. So, we're going to see in the coming verses that we read that Jesus is talking about three things. The destruction of the temple, the second coming of Christ, and the end of the world. And you will find as you read for, through this 24th chapter that he's talking about all three things. And it's hard sometimes to figure out what he's talking about. Because the second coming of Christ may or may not be concurrent with what he's talking about in the end of the world. So let's go into this. And I will be the first to say that I am not an expert in end time events. And one reason I decided I was not an expert is because when I read my Spirit-Filled Life Bible, if you look at the introduction to it, they give you a great summary of the different perspectives of the book of Revelation. And nine people that are probably smarter than all of us combined in this room today, there's nine different opinions about when he's coming back and the Great Tribulation, is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and all those things that make up the book of Revelation. All I know is it's a blessing promise when you read the book of Revelation and we don't want to get too distracted into the, the sequence of events. We just don't want to be thoroughly convinced that Jesus is coming back to the planet. And until then, I want to be about the master's business. And who Matt Gog and Magog is, I'll leave that up to the people that are writing books and making money. In the 70s, Hal Lindsey wrote a great book. It was a huge, tremendous seller, The Late Great Planet Earth. And lo and behold, it was all figured out. We knew what Russia was going to do. We knew what China was going to do. We knew when Israel became a state in 1948, and that was the budding of the fig tree, and it was all figured out. Unfortunately, it didn't all happen that way, and the book was revised in part two. We are trying to figure this out. So I am not presenting this to you as... I'm going to give you a date or a person or tell you who the Antichrist is, but rather I'm going to endeavor to tell you what Jesus taught, what was important to him, and uh, everything else we'll try to kind of let go by the, by the wayside. Okay, let's begin in verse 3 where he gets into the picture here. So the destruction of the temple was kind of the focal point as he began. Now verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. So now this is his inner circle of disciples. 
Um, and they said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? Now, let's read several verses, and then we'll comment. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one, yeah, no one deceives you. For a few people will come in my name, saying I'm the Christ. No, he said, many, many will come, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Or these are what is probably more easily understood to us, the birth pangs. Or these are the beginning. When you see these things, you that women that know when your labor starts, and when your body begins to react in a way it's never reacted before, and it begins to zing and wing and bang, and you know that something is being ready to happen. And that's what the Bible is trying to tell us here. Now let's go back. Look at verse 3. He came to the Mount of Olives, and he said to his disciples privately, When will these things be? Now what did he just talk about? The destruction of the temple. First thing he talked about was the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left. And lo and behold, that happened. It was, it was wiped out. What will be the sign of your coming? There's the second thing that he will address. And thirdly, what is the sign of the end of the age? So as you read through Matthew 24, and much of what Jesus talks about as, as end-time events, he's talking about three things. The destruction of the temple, A.D. 70, which was accomplished. It happened. It's historical. But then his coming and the end of the age are yet to be. Now, prophecy, predictive prophecy in the Bible is like looking at a mountain range. If you have ever been in the mountains, traveled, or if you have driven a car in the mountains, and you are able to see a series of mountain peaks, when you're far away, it looks like those peaks are touching each other, right? But yet, when you actually get on top of the first one, it could be miles to the next mountain. But yet, depending on your perspective, it looks like it's bang, bang, bang. But that's not the case. Well, that's often what prophecy is, how it's like. The visionary, whether it's John the Revelator in the book of Revelation, or even Jesus in this answer, see, when, when they say, scholars say that when the, the prophets would speak about end-time events, it would not always be in chronological order. But it would be rather a clustering of the types of activities. In Revelation, you have the bowl judgments, and you have the, what was the other judgment? Not the bowl judgment, but the... Um, the vial, anyway, okay. But, but it's almost like a, a, a repetition there in the book of Revelation. Well, so Jesus is talking about three separate events here. Now, you'll see if we were to look further in verses 15 through 28 and 32 through 35, we would see reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so we'll come back to that when we get there. But this second question about when he's coming back is not just a, well, if you can figure out how many earthquakes and how many famines and how many wars, then you'll know the day of his return. I believe the Bible teaches that it is erroneous for us even to try to figure out that day. It is impossible, as was told in Acts chapter 1, that only the Father knew the day of his coming. But clearly, characterized by the last days, there will be religious deception there will be political and social upheaval. There is an uncertainty in the world. And we're seeing what's perhaps going to unfold globally happening in the nation of Greece today. 
If you've been following the nation of Greece, Greece is the first sovereign state that begin to default on their debt, uh, the first one that they can't pay their bills. And what's happened, Greece is a part of the European Union. It's a league of nations, just like the, our United States of America. Perhaps there's a parallel. Do you know there is, what, eight to ten states that are near bankruptcy in America today? Their own budget, not to mention cities. Cities across America are contemplating bankruptcy. But Greek is unique because it's the first state. And the IMF uh, and the European Union this weekend set up $150 billion to give the nation to try to help them with their calamities. Well, if you look at the, the news, uh, headlines and things today, they're killing each other in Greece. They're burning. I mean, they are rioting. They have shut the nation down because they're basically saying, listen, we want our money. We want our economy. We want our society to continue to function as it was. Now, how many know the same thing could happen here? We want our Social Security. We want our Medicare. We want our FDIC insurance. I had money in the bank. You guaranteed me you'd pay me. I put money in the pension, and the pensions are underfunded all across America. California alone, over $50 billion underfunded. And the agencies that are supposed to be investigating these things, when they're audited, they fail their audit. I mean, I mean, it, social upheaval. Well, we're in that day. See, and that's what this is kind of describing. We don't know how long it's going to go, but sooner or later there's going to be an upheaval that is, well, eclipses anything the world has ever known. Um, but clearly this upheaval, natural calamities, disloyalty and persecution all characterize what Jesus is talking about in the last days. But now, interesting, believers of Christ, you will see as we, we're going to look at 14 verses tonight, believers in Christ are encouraged basically to keep steadfast in your faith in the midst of this and keep spreading the gospel. See, that's the thing I can do something about. I can't do anything about who the Antichrist is. I can't control when he's coming on the scene. I cannot control a world events. And sometimes Christians get, in my opinion, diverted from the main thing, just trying to figure out all these details and how it all fits together. But the one thing the Lord wants us to get involved in is spreading the gospel around the world and making disciples. You will see that is the overarching theme about what to do. Be prepared, be ready, keep your faith, be diligent, be watchful, and let my gospel go around the world. Okay? Let's look at verse 4 again. In verse 4, when the first thing when Jesus said about the end of the world, he said, Take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed means to watch out. Be on your guard. And to be deceived is another way of saying, Don't let anyone fool you. Which clearly suggests to us that in these last days, there will be people trying to uh, divert our attention from the main thing. There will be, as he talks about, uh, Jesus said, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and deceive many. Other translations, when they say, will come in his name, it means they, they're trying to impersonate me. They're claiming to be me. Some translations say they're claiming to speak for me or claiming that they're my representatives. Now listen, in the course of my life, I have known several that were suggested to be the Savior. Uh, Sun Young Moon, if you can remember him a number of years ago. Uh, some of the Eastern religions were all for a Savior. Uh, it, as we speak today, Ahmadinejad and Iran and the mullahs there are expecting the Messiah to come. And they ha they, they're on a, a, a mission in Iran. They want to bring back, and what, what, what do they call him? Does anybody know? I wasn't prepared to say this, but anyway, they're expecting the Messiah to come. And basically, their role is to wipe out the infidels to prepare the way for the Messiah. I mean, these guys are serious about what they're doing. But people will come, uh, and, and people in America today will present themselves as a prophet of God, 
a spokesman of God, a representative of God. And I mean, no, not everybody that says that they're speaking for the Lord are speaking for the Lord. So Jesus is saying, first of all, don't be deceived. Now, how do you know if you're deceived? Okay, now you've, you're on to something there. She said, if it doesn't line up with the Bible. Well, how do you know if, it do, if it's going to line up with the Bible if you don't know the Bible? Now, hopefully I'm trustworthy, but don't just believe it because I said it. You know, we all have a responsibility to know the Word of God, to know what it teaches. But that's the way you discern truth from error, is you discern based on the Bible. What we hold and believe to what I believe is kind of the last day uh, unity of the church, which is the, those that believe uh, a conservative theology that believes that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, its truths are absolute and unchanging, and Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. I believe that will transcend doct uh, denominational differences that used to divide people, assemblies and Baptists and Methodists and Episcopals and Presbyterians. You're watching the dividing line today is between the liberal and conservative. And I don't mean the politician now. I'm talking about theologically those that believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God and those that don't. There are in the great historic churches in America, the Presbyterian Church founded by John Knox, the Methodist Church founded by John Wesley. There is a divide in these great institutions of the Lutheran Church founded by Martin Luther, those that believe and advocate uh, uh, gay marriage and, and ordaining gay priests. You say, well, how can they do that? They don't believe the Bible is the literal inerrant word of God. And that, I think, is the great dividing line, and that is the way you know deception. Does it line up with the Bible or not? Uh, verse 6, it's an interesting word. Uh, you'll hear of um, wars and rumors of wars, but don't be troubled. All these things must come to pass. I want you to notice that phrase, must comes to pass, because it implies to us that history is under the control of God. And here's something you and I, you, I don't know what you and I might have to live through in the days ahead. I don't know what level of, of uh, protection that, we, you know, that God might offer in a calamity. I mean, we might all have to move in with Brother Fred. I know he'd be welcome to have us live in there, but I don't. I don't you know, who knows what it may be. But listen, no matter what you face in the future, earth is not your home, and God is still with you. You know, and it may be that some of the things that have anchored our life, like bolted into the ground, may get loosened. And we may become a little more like a temporary resident. I don't know what the future may hold, but persecution will be a part of it, as we'll see in just a minute. Uh, this must take place. That, that gives you a sense that God is ultimately in control. God may not be causing the activities of the Antichrist. He may not be causing the activity of the tornado. But ultimately, God will control the affairs of this world. See, evil is like a, it's like a computer virus. Somehow it just gets in there and you don't see it. You just see what it's doing. You know, your computer maybe is running slow, or it may be, you know, spurious things may be coming up. Your programs may not be working. You get an expert to take a look at, and he said, well, you've got a virus. You didn't see the virus in there, just like your kids can't see the ground-up onions that you put in the spaghetti sauce or the ground-up garlic, but it's in there. Evil works like that in this world today. You see it when you look in the mirror as you age, and you think, you know, what's happening to me? You know, or you go to the doctor, and he says something, what's happening? Well... Sin and evil have worked itself through, but ultimately God is in control. So no matter who is in the Oval Office of America, no matter who's going to be elected to whatever, the, uh, the head guy in Britain or European Union or Antichrist, all, God is ultimately in control. Uh, that's encouraging to us. Look at verse 7. 
It kind of describes what we see today, but what's been happening all along. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. What does that mean? Nations, it may refer to international wars, kingdom against kingdom. It could be civil wars. One thing we do know is there's going to be wars and civil strife everywhere. He goes on to say, don't be troubled, which means in the middle of all that, we can still find peace. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I'm sorry, uh, verse 7, there'll be famines, and a famine certainly by definition is some people will be starving. Somewhere, but you know around the world, how much worse will, can it get than Sudan right now? How much worse does it get than if you live in the nation of Haiti right now? and you subsist on a bowl of rice and maybe some kind of curry sauce a day. I mean, how much, how much worse can it, can it get? But for some peoples of the world, it will get much worse. Earthquakes in various places. Was it this morning again? Another 6.6 .6 in Indonesia? I mean, how many big earthquakes? Just think in the last few months, how many big earthquakes we've seen. A couple off the California's coast. We have saw, you know, Haiti. We have saw several in South America. I mean, it's earthquakes around us. They didn't just start. But there are point there, 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 there's something that happens in the last days. And verse 8 tells us this. These are not sequential events, but these are the beginning of sorrows. These are like birth pangs. This is when a woman says, I'm starting my labor. My contractions have started. Now, how many know in the Bible, uh, I believe it's in the book of Peter, where it says a day is as a, to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So when God looks at this, God has an ability, it's like the mountain range, but when we live through it, it could be an elongated period of time. See, and depending where you are in the process, how I many know the Israelites under, under uh, uh, Joseph, they, 400 years they lived in Egypt. Every one of them had the promise of Abraham for a promised land, but many of them died there in the wilderness. Hebrews 11 say many die in faith and don't have it, not having received the promise, but they're looking for something, they're anticipating something. Well, that which we're anticipating is the second coming of Christ. None of us want to live through the great tribulation. I certainly hope the pre-raptured people are right about that. But listen, if you're living in the persecuted church today, if you're in the underground church today or, or around the world, how much worse can it get? How much worse can it get if they burn your home and if, they, if you lose your job because you're a Christian? How much worse can it get if you can't get a job because you're a Christian in some nation? How much worse can it get if they're going to you know, take your life because you, you come to Christ? Well, let's keep reading. Um, okay, look at verse, verse 9. Then, everybody say then. Then they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. And this sounds interesting. They're going to kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, who likes that? But many will be offended. And this is what Christians will be doing. Some Christians are standing firm and they'll lose their life. The book of Revelation says that. When you recently read through the book of Revelation, it's a bloody book for saints. There's a lots of folks that are martyred. There's a lot of people that don't take the mark of the beast because if you did, you're consigned to eternal punishment. And when they don't, you know, their lives are, their lives are taken from them. So some people will stand strong, but verse 10, many will be offended and they'll betray one another. We're going to come back to that word betrayal. It's interesting. This is how Christians are treating each other. They'll hate one another. Then... False prophets will rise up. Where are they rising up? They're rising up from the church, from their own midst. And what will they do? They'll deceive many. So there's false Christ without. False prophets are rising from within. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
lawlessness is abounding in the world and our love and our heart either towards God or towards other people is growing cold. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. In that reminiscent of the book of Revelation that it talks about the overcomer seven different times in seven churches to him who overcomes will inherit all these different things. Um, it goes on to say, verse 14, which is, in my opinion, the barometer of my end-time theology, not the boogeyman or antichrist, but it's verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to, and then the end will come. Destruction of the temple, second coming of Christ, and then the end will come. Let's kind of, uh, let's walk back through this now. Look at verse 9 again. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to kill you. You'll be hated for my name's sake. Some translations say you'll be arrested and handed over. Your enemies will punish you. They will kill you. They will make you suffer, and they will put you to death. So there could be a price to pay to be a Christian. Up to this point in my life, there's not really been a price to pay. But you can see America persecution happening in America. I'm doing a series in our, in our Bible school that we're finishing up called Launch called Speechless. A great, if you wanted to show it, it's a video series you could show in your home. It's 30-minute segments by the American Family Association about how Christians are being shut out of society, being persecuted, what's going on in America today, how Christians at the University of Texas in Arlington, two Christians lost their job because they played, prayed for a Christian co-worker, and the Christian co-worker was in trouble, asked for prayer, but he reported them to the authorities. The two ladies lost their job, and he gets to keep his job. And it's in the federal court system today as we speak. This is in America, the real live world we're living in, in today. And why is this happening? It's happening that men will kill you and you'll be hated for my name's sake. Or some translations say, because of me, because of your allegiance to me, because you're my followers. Now, didn't Jesus tell us in the book of Philippians that it's accounted unto us not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name? So I shake it, and let me just commend you for coming on a Wednesday night. This is my least favorite time of the year. People are tired in April, ball games and school and everything. It's easy to stay home from church. I want to commend you for being here, and I want to commend your hunger for God. I want to commend you, and hopefully this is speaking to you. Now, I want to interrupt Matthew for just a second, and let me read what Mark says in Mark chapter 13. He adds a little bit to this teaching. Mark 13, verse 9, Jesus said, Watch out for yourselves. They will deliver you up to councils. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. Listen, for a testimony to them. So in the midst of persecution, it becomes an opportunity to witness. Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, Jesus said, don't worry or premeditate about what you're going to say. But whatever is given to you in that hour by the Holy Spirit, you speak that. For it's not you who's speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So, so uh, Mark gives us some, some encouragement. Is that If you're persecuted for your faith, if you suffer for your faith, as you're giving testimony to Christ in that, in the middle of that, God will be with you, and God will speak to you, and God will show you what to say. Because the grand glory of what we're doing is not just our comfort, but it's the advancement of the kingdom, and it's spreading the gospel. Now, verse 12 has always troubled me. It says, brother will betray the brother to death and a father his child. I cannot imagine how I could ever betray Rebecca or Bethany or John. This must be when some in the family are saved and some are not. 
children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You say, well, we'd never do that. Didn't Peter say, I'll never deny you, and he ran like a scared child three times? I don't know what happens if, in, in the book of Revelation, you can't buy or sell for the mark of the beast. Unless you have that mark. I mean, I pray to God we're not alive in that day, but somebody's going to be alive on planet Earth in that day. And there's some pressures that we have never lived under. Verse 13, you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But then he said again, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, in Mark's gospel, he's calling for endurance in the midst of persecution. In Matthew's gospel that we first read from, he's calling for endurance in the midst of false teaching and when the love of many grow cold. Let's keep going. Luke 21 adds this thought. Your parents, your brothers, your relatives, and your friends will turn against you. Parents, brothers, friends, and relatives will turn against you. All people will hate you because you follow me. We forget sometimes that wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on it. But narrow, come on, is the path to life, and few people find it. See, for most people on the planet, this world is their home. It's all they got. And that's why they do everything they can to preserve what they have and to preserve their power and their position. That's why, in my opinion, most politicians in America today are not out for the good of the people. They're out to preserve their power and their way of life. They'll still find a way to ride around in limos if you and I are driving, you goes or walking. I mean, it's, a, it's the world that we live in today, and it's not just human beings. There's a spiritual component to this. Uh, all people will hate you because you follow me. None of these things can really harm you. Now, wait a minute. If I'm being killed, didn't Jesus tell us not to fear those who kill the body? But didn't he say to fear those who what? Are able, him who's able to cast your soul into hellfire. Again, earth is not your home. You're, you're passing through. You're a stranger. This is a temporary place. God views oftentimes pain and suffering different than we do. Now, he weeps when we weep. Remember when Stephen was being stoned? Jesus stood up. And Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, but it seems to be a part of those that are godly people that they endure. In verse 19 of Luke, by continuing to have faith, you will save your lives. So I want to enjoin you, whether that is strictly your character and your commitment to endurance, or that is the evidence of those that are truly saved, the bottom line is you and I need to stay with this thing until it's over. And if we don't take a nickel with us in our retirement account, what's going to matter is the fact that we have followed Christ until the day of our death. Come on. I mean, if we eat lobster every day between now and then, or we're thankful for a bowl of beans one day, listen, this is not our home. And we are temporary strangers passing through. And somebody is going through some torment and suffering here on this earth. And Jesus has enjoined us to finish strong till the end. That's why I'm concerned with most people that just show up in church in American, in American church. Most people, listen, how could you endure this kind of suffering for Christ? Come on, if you can't even turn loose of a couple bucks. If, if you can't even get up on the Lord's Day to come to worship. How, how are you going to endure for your eternal soul? It troubles me very much. Look at verse 10. Most people, you, and I probably ran some people off in my New You series when I was talking about worldliness and lordship. I fear that most people only want a Savior to get them to heaven and don't want to follow Christ as their Lord. And I fear that's a false conversion because that is all about me. 
And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And it is that place when Christ not only is my Savior, but my Lord to whom I obey and follow. All right, let's, let's try to wrap up. Verse 10, he talks about falling. Many will fall away, which means they'll give up their faith. They'll stop believing me. They'll give up being my followers. Okay? Now, this word betrayal in verse 10, it, it's, it's the same word that was used when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Uh, and basically, this scripture says there are a group of believers that will have, be, have, be betrayed just like Christ was betrayed. Um, one translation says they'll turn each other over to the authorities. Now, that's a scary thought, but that's going to happen. Verse 11, where he spoke of the uh, false prophets will arise and deceive many. These false prophets coming from the Christian community, not from the world, but they're arising from your own midst. And what do they do? They draw away disciples after them. That's why, in my opinion, when you're following someone, if they're not leading you towards reaching souls, living a holy life, making disciples, you're missing it. You can, you can divert a little bit, even towards some things that are good and true in the Bible, but you can miss the main thing. Um, that happened, that was warned, of course, in the book of Acts, Acts 20, verse 29, when Paul said, Savage wolves will come in, but from among your own midst, men will rise up speaking perverse things and draw disciples away after them. Verse 12, this false prophets, people that say they're speaking God's word, but actually are not. The lawless ones is all around us. Wickedness is all around us. Evil do it. The Bible says there'll be wicked people everywhere. And the love, uh, men's, lo uh, men's uh, the, the love, what's it say? The, the love of many will grow cold. Now, we don't know if that's love for God, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or love your neighbor as yourself. But somehow coldness comes in because of all this evil. And you have to watch it too. Do you, do you ever get just cynical and tired in your Christian life? Not because you're busy, but because of all the calamity and evil and maybe prayers that aren't answered. And why is God not doing something about this? And why are things not changing? You know, why is my life, hadn't it gotten better? See, if you're not careful, those kind of dynamics, when God kind of is on hold for a reason you and I can't figure out, and it simply calls for endurance. And that's what many people, I'm sad to say, uh, do, do not have. Verse 13, uh, this enduring to the end, well, we, we've talked about that. Uh, it will be saved, in verse 13, your final salvation. Now, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then what does it say? Then the end will come. So, for me, the mark of the end times or the end days is not that, uh, is not that the boogeyman is coming. It's not that uh, uh, the Antichrist is here. Uh, but the focus for me is on bringing the gospel of Christ to all the world. And, and that's the barometer here. This gospel of the kingdom we were preaching all the world is a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, I can't fully tell you what that means, the end will come. Where does the millennium fit in here, this thousand-year reign of Christ? When is the great tribulation coming? And I don't know, but the end will come one day. And you and I have to endure until that day, until the day that you go home to be with the Lord unexpectedly, in case you're in St. Michael's, or in case you're persecuted, or in case somebody one day says, as they did in Hitler's death camps, what's the difference? You know, if you don't disavow your allegiance to whatever it was, Judaism, or, 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 or if you don't pledge allegiance to the state, off to the death chamber you go. 
I mean, there is no difference. But the, the, the world waits an experience like that. And Jesus said it's just going to be a part of it, and there'll be believers that are alive in that day. If you read through the churches in the book of Revelation, I believe it was Antipas, who was a faithful martyr. I believe it was the church in Smyrna. It was the only church that was not rebuked for something in their church assembly. But they had stood strong in the place where Satan was at work. And the Bible says there was great reward for them at the end. So anyway, the focus for the believer, all this having said and done, I'm going to stop here tonight. But uh, Lord willing, we'll pick this up. But uh, the focus on all this was that don't get caught up in the sequence of the dates and the time and the issues. Let your focus be on what you can do something about. Taking the gospel to the world as long as you have breath, making disciples, winning souls, making a difference, advancing the kingdom. In so doing, you store up treasure for heaven. You go deeper in your Christian faith so you can endure if you have to endure for a season because one day Jesus is coming back and all this stuff will be over. One day there'll be no more dying, no more crying, no more sickness, no more pain, no more persecution, no more evil, no more suffering, none of that. The former things will have passed away. Evil will be gone. The second death will be in the lake of fire. It will burn forever and ever and ever. All those that have rejected Christ and you and I will have a new heaven, a new earth, and we won't have need of the sun because Jesus Christ will be the glory of the sun and his glory will illuminate the place. Praise the Lord. Okay, well, we just got started. Lord willing, we'll do it some more. Thanks, Lord, tonight for the Word of God that is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that we can make sense out of the world we live in because we trust in you and we know your Word. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would just let, if there's anything that I said was not true and not of you, let it kind of evaporate. But, Lord, everything that was of God and was true tonight, I pray that it would stick with us, particularly that part about enduring, about being strong, not letting our, the, the love for God and people diminish in our hearts, not being frustrated to the point of seeking to be a believer and turning around because evil is in the world and getting worse and worse. Lord, help us not to be deceived by either false prophets or false Christs. Let us have discernment about us, but let us have a commitment to stay with this thing and let us have a focus, Lord, on lost people in the world and the gospel of the kingdom. So we love you and we bless you, and I pray that your favor would follow all my friends tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.